Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Listen as I read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is Love. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, we've been going through a series on the Holy Spirit, and uh, we took uh, a break last week because I wasn't here, and the week before that we did something related to Easter, and so it's been a couple of weeks. So I've been reviewing every week, and there's no need to stop now. Uh, The first week we looked at the Holy Spirit uh, as a person. Because we tend to, when we think of the Holy Spirit, maybe we tend to think of a force, but we argued from the Bible that the Holy Spirit is a person with a will, with emotions, with thoughts, that speaks. Uh, He does all the things that persons do, and he is one of the three in the Godhead, one person in the triune God. We then looked the following week in the Old Testament uh, at the Holy Spirit as a promised reality, and what we said Uh, is that even though the church throughout history, Old Testament and New, has always been saved by faith, there was an expectation of a a greater experience of God's presence in uh, the new covenant that was promised. And so we looked at uh, the fact that the Holy Spirit wasn't in every believer in the Old Testament the way that he is in every believer in the New Testament. He worked more among the people of Israel uh, and, and that his presence just wasn't an expected daily reality. We looked at the statistics of use and, and the Spirit and the Holy Spirit w- was not used that much in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, which is a book four times smaller than the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is mentioned four times as much. And you can work out through factoring what that means percentage-wise, but that's beyond my capacity at at math. Uh, And we said, well, if we're going to receive those great promises of the Holy Spirit that was going to come with the new covenant, then we needed a a Holy Spirit anointed Messiah. And indeed, that's what we have in Jesus, that he was one anointed of the Holy Spirit. He did his miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that as the Holy Spirit bearer, He can then become the Holy Spirit bestower. So we looked at that uh, the following week, that the Holy Spirit is the one who in the church glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. He's always drawing attention to the Father and to the Son. 
Uh, and so in the church, he's glorifying the Father and the Son. And then the week after that, because we were going to begin soon to look at some controversial issues, we talked about how to engage in a theological debate. And we talked through all of these different ways that we argue that are not appropriate and uh, are not Christian. To argue badly is to be a bad Christian because we pursue the truth and we should do it in love. And therefore, good arguing techniques should be part and parcel of the way that Christians engage with one another, but that's not often the case, is it? And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the gifts of the Holy Spirit just in an introductory way. Now, what are they when they're listed out? How are they listed and, and how are they discussed and what's the definition? And, and we have this quote in that sermon, and I just want to read it again because it's so important for us to know. And I know it's small enough that you probably can't read it. I certainly couldn't read it if I was sitting where you were. But it says this. There's a crucial principle we need to understand from the outset. Spiritual gifts are not God bestowing to his people something external to himself. They're not some tangible stuff or substance separable from God. Spiritual gifts are nothing less than God himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our mind, infusing power in our wills and working his sovereign and gracious purposes through us. Spiritual gifts must never be viewed deistically as if a God out there has sent something to us down here. Spiritual gifts are God present in, with, and through human thoughts, deeds, words, human love. And so we asked these questions last time, are spiritual gifts a permanent fixture of the church? And we said no. There's going to come a day when Jesus returns that we'll have the Spirit in all of his fullness, and all of us will have all of them, will be fully matured, and so at that point they won't function in the same way. We said, are spiritual gifts a permanent fixture in the lifetime of a believer? Yes. It would seem from the scriptures that the gifts that we have are generally the gifts that stay with us. But nevertheless, we're told to pursue gifts and we're told to fan into flame the gifts that we have. And so while many of us will have the same gift or gifts throughout our lifetime, it's possible both to cause that gift to grow and to pray that God would give us new ones then we closed by saying how do we know what our spiritual gifts is or are and we talked about how it's, it's through a series of questions that you ask yourself and then it's getting out there and doing some things so what are you good at what do you like when you do something does does it feel like god blesses it and are people blessed so when you serve are people really blessed when you teach are people really blessed uh, when you give, when you, when you demonstrate faith, when you use your administrative skills, are people blessed? Are you good at it? Do you love it? Um, do other people say you're good at it? Uh, but even then, sometimes we just need to get out there and try a bunch of things and see which things the Lord blesses. So that brings us to tonight. When we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, part two. Now... Throughout us looking at spiritual gifts, we've always been sort of looking ahead to the sort of charismatic stuff. Because since the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the charismatic movement has been blowing and going worldwide. When we talk about the growth of Christians worldwide, uh, and so many people are becoming Christians worldwide, the vast majority of them are 
being one to a charismatic sort of Christianity. Uh, and there are reports of miracles and tongue speaking and, and all these sorts of things all over the world. And that's given rise to celebration in some and uh, not so celebratory reaction in others. And we said that thinking on these sign gifts, and that's what we're going to call them tonight, sign gifts, the gifts of miracles, the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues, the gift of prophecy. There are some who believe that these gifts have ceased. That is, they no longer are in operation. And then there are others called continuationists who um, believe that these gifts are still in operation. Now, let me see if I have my points listed out, because what I'm going to do tonight is go through uh, a bunch of these arguments and tell you what I think about them. Uh, and then we're going to kind of, you're going to see tonight how I feel about these things, uh, whether I'm a continuationist or whether I'm a cessationist. But let me say this uh, before I even begin. I'm only speaking for me, and we're an elder-led church. We're not a Drew-led church. So we have other elders who may disagree with me on this, and that's fine. I'm giving you my opinion. And what I'm doing tonight is telling you what I think and helping you look through it so that you can go from here and look yourself. This is not exhaustive, it's just introductory. Capiche? So there's no need to freak out no matter what I say tonight because what I'm saying tonight is not the official stance of the church. We don't have one, but you can look at our practice and see that unless something really amazing or scary happens, things will probably continue along the same trajectory they're continuing. But it's good to go through these sorts of things because it helps us to think biblically. And so, there are four arguments that, y'all with me? Okay. Y'all with me? Okay. There are four arguments that cessationists use. There's actually six or seven. I'm going to deal with four tonight and two more next week. That cessationists use in order to say they believe that the sign gifts are no longer in operation. The cluster argument, the validation argument, the historical argument, and the sufficiency argument. And what I'm going to do is go through these one by one and talk about why cessationists argue that way. And then here, tipping my hand, tell you why I disagree. So I'm letting you know right now, Pastor Drew is a continuationist. Okay? You, now you know. But surely you know that I'm not a very good one. Because <laughs> I haven't spoken in tongues. Uh, and we're not doing the sorts of things in here that we normally associate with uh, people who believe in the sign gifts. So what I am is someone who's a continuationist who's open but cautious, which is the most wimpy of all the positions. But here I stand. God help me. I can do no other. All right. So the cluster argument uh, is the first argument that cessationists use in order to show that the sign gifts are no longer in operation. I'm going to read from three cessationists so that you know what this argument is. First is from Tim Challies, and all these are men I respect and would tell you to read their books and say I love them. They've been so helpful to me. Just on this, I disagree with them. Tim Challies says this, There are only three primary periods in which God worked miracles through unique men. The first was with Moses. The second was during the ministries of Elijah and Elijah. The third was with Christ and his apostles. So that's why we say cluster 
because miracles in the Bible tend to cluster around certain people, it seems, on the face of it. Or how about Sinclair Ferguson? I love Sinclair Ferguson. A temporary manifestation of these gifts is characteristic of God's pattern of working. Contrary to popular opinion, such gifts as these sign gifts were given spasmodically in biblical history. Their occurrence is generally contained within a handful of time periods lasting around a generation each, clustered. Or the one who probably really argued this most vehemently is John MacArthur. Again, read his books. Good man. I disagree with him on some stuff, but I love his heart. John MacArthur says this, Most biblical miracles happened in three relatively brief periods of Bible history. In the days of Moses and Joshua, during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and in the time of Christ and the apostles. Aside from those three intervals, the only supernatural events recorded in Scripture were isolated incidents. In the days of Isaiah, for example, he healed Hezekiah and turned the sun's shadow back. In the days of Daniel, God preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For the most part, however, supernatural events like those did not characterize God's dealing with his people. All three periods of miracles were times when God gave his written revelation, scripture, in substantial quantities. Those doing the miracles were essentially the same ones heralding the era of revelation. So you see what he's arguing here is that, that these three clusters, when miracles happen in the Bible, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elijah, Jesus and the prophets, we're in these times of new revelation. And, and we'll get to the validation argument in a minute because these kind of go together. In other words, since the Bible was entering into a new phase of development, there were a bunch of uh, miracles given around that time, clustered around those men. And I have to say, this argument has appeal at first glance. You think back through the scripture and you think about, all right, who really did a lot of miracles? Moses, Elijah and Elijah, and Jesus and the apostles. And so maybe, maybe that's right. And I've believed this argument for a long time. There's just um, a couple of problems with it. Uh, the first is, are you ready? It isn't true. Which is kind of a problem, isn't it? So here's what I mean. I'm going to flip back through all of these. Do you know what all of these are? These are listings of miracles done and sign gifts done at other times in the Bible other than Elijah, Elisha, Moses, and Joshua, and Jesus and the apostles. Are you seeing a trend? There were a lot of them. You're like, I didn't see anything. They went by too fast. Uh, I'll let any of you see that list that you want to. And all of them are something like sign gifts or prophetic gifts. In other words, uh, there's a lot of miracles that occur outside of those periods. One um, author said this, um, the book of Daniel is devastating to MacArthur's theory that supernatural things are basically confined to the periods of Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elijah, Daniel, uh, and the, Jesus. And here's the, the book of Daniel, why it's devastating. He ministered from 605 to 539 B.C., well beyond the time of Elijah and Elisha. Yet proportionally, Daniel's book contains more supernatural events than the books of Exodus through Joshua and 1 Kings through 2 Kings. Every chapter in the book of Daniel has supernatural occurrences. Secondly, 
If the argument is that things are clustered around new times of revelation and inscripturation, let me ask you a question. Which books did Elijah and Elisha write? Do you see what I'm saying? They didn't have writing ministries. They were, they were just two prophets. Third, and this is pretty bad for this case, Jeremiah 32, 20. You want to know what that says? Jeremiah claimed, you performed miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day, both in Israel and among all mankind, and have gained the renown that is still yours. So Jeremiah thinks miracles happen when? A lot. A lot. And so that leads to a question, leads to a couple of questions. Maybe everything that's recorded was just everything that was supposed to be recorded and not everything that happened. Doesn't John tell us this? That if I were to write down everything that Jesus did, it would fill more books than could be held in a library? Now, that's the first thing. The second thing about this argument is there are seasons in the Scripture when there aren't miracles, but the, the, the Bible kind of gives us a reason why there are times with no miracles. And it's because of the lack of faith and sinfulness of people. So like Mark chapter 6, verse 5 and 6 said this, And he could do, Jesus, could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief as he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus would have done a whole lot more miracles, but the problem was what? Unbelief. And so what the cluster argument does is it assumes that there are clusters of miracles, which isn't true, and then they assume, apart from any verse saying so, why they're clustered. And the Bible gives us another reason why there aren't miracles. You following me? So all that put together, I can't buy that argument. I don't think that's true. Second argument, the validation argument. And what is this argument? teach. I'll read again from a cessationist. God enabled Moses to perform miracles for one purpose only, to validate his claims to speak for God. This continues to be the purpose of miracles throughout the Old Testament. Only those who spoke authoritatively and infallibly for God were given the power of miracles. Your ears should go up right there. When we come to the New Testament, we discover the same pattern. The primary purpose of Jesus' miracles was to confirm the credentials, uh, his credentials as God's final and ultimate messenger. Jesus' miracles were not performed primarily as a tool for evangelism or about alleviating human suffering. The main reason the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to perform miracles was to confirm that he was everything he claimed to be and that he spoke the word of God. So the validation argument is miracles are given to validate the word that is spoken. Miracles are here so that you can believe what is said. And tongues speaking and the, the other sign gifts are all here to validate God's spokesman so that we believe the scripture. You all understand that argument? Now let me say this. That's certainly true. That's absolutely true. Look what John 5.36 says. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given to me accomplish, the very works I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What did Jesus say? 
He said, the works that I'm doing validate who I say I am and, and what I'm speaking is God's truth. Or in John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Or how about this? Hebrews 2, I, love, I know you'll love it when I read a lot of stuff. Hebrews 2, 1 and following. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that's the Old Testament, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, that is the, the salvation brought in Jesus, which was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So Hebrews 2 and other places let us know clearly that, that as far as it goes, this is right, that miracles and tongue speaking and signs are given to validate that someone is speaking God's truth. Easy peasy. But just because that's a reason why miracles are given, does it therefore necessitate that that is the only reason that miracles are given? No. What if the Bible says there are other reasons that miracles and tongues and prophecies are given? What you're doing when you use this argument against the sign gifts is you're being reductionistic. Doesn't that sound awful? Who wants to be reductionistic? You don't want to be reductionistic, kids. How about this? 1 Corinthians 12, in that context, Paul is speaking about the gifts such as miracles and tongues and prophecies, and Paul doesn't say there they're given to validate his preaching. Paul says they're given for the common good. In other words, there's more than one reason why God gives those sorts of things. Yes, to validate what Jesus and the apostles are saying, to validate Moses as his spokesman. But the Bible also says that uh, miracles are given, signs are given, so that people will just be edified for their good. Another niggle with this argument uh, is that there were a lot of people who didn't speak scripture who did miracles. For instance, the 70 who were commissioned in Luke, at least 108 among the 120 gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, they had signed stuff happen to them. Stephen, Ananias, church members in Antioch, new converts in Ephesus, the women at Caesarea, the unnamed brethren of Galatians, believers in Rome, believers in Corinth, Christians in Thessalonica. In other words, there's a bunch of people who didn't speak scripture, who were given miracles and sign gifts, and that's because there's more than one reason why there's given. Yes, to validate, but also just for the common good. All right, you good? So, so far, I don't know that I've convinced you, but in my mind at least, taken care of this one we've taken care of this one the historical argument let me tell you what the historical argument is it's a historical argument what that means is it seems from some looks that even within the time of the new testament miracles were already on the wane and that there's not been much in terms of sign gifts throughout the history of the church 
Um, and so historically, we have a good argument just from the frequency of miracles and tongue speaking and prophecy giving that, um, that maybe it's past. And so kind of uh, cumulatively together, add all these things up, and it's a nice, strong argument. And the historical argument is a piece of it. Listen to what Tim Chalice says. The practice of apostolic gifts declines even during the lifetime of the apostles. Even in the written books of the New Testament, the miraculous gifts are mentioned less as the date of their writing gets later. After the New Testament era, we see the miraculous gifts cease. John Chrysostom, Augustine speak of their ceasing. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, B.B. Warfield all agree that the gifts ended after the first century and had been given only to confirm the message when it first appeared. Or as Ferguson says... The history of the New Testament suggests that by the close of the apostolic age, the role of these gifts was being superseded by the completion of the New Testament. Thus, there's no reference uh, up to their presence uh, in the pastoral letters. Now, again, that's just wrong. It's just wrong. We have, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians... And then some stuff happened, and then he wrote the pastoral letters. Do you know what happened in between then? Acts 28, at the the end of the apostolic era in Acts 28, 1 through 10. Listen to what it says. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he must be a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island called Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when, he had taken, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed." That's right towards the end of the book of Acts. What is Paul doing? Miracles. Or 1 John, which would have, by most accounts, have been written after all of that, speaks of prophecy. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And if Paul is saying false prophets have gone out into the world, test the spirits, he's implying at least that there are some true prophets still out in the world. Do you see that? Or, and you know me, you know how badly it does my heart to say anything to question Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Augustine, Spurgeon, or B.B. Warfield. Their books are in my office and I read them. As much as it hurts my heart, they were saying what they knew, but goodness gracious, they had even less ability to be informed about things than we do now, right? They didn't know everything that was going on in the world. And people who have studied it since... Uh, for instance, a man named D.A. Carson. Anybody ever heard of D.A. Carson? He's a huge, big egghead who teaches at a seminary in 
uh, Chicago. He's by no means a charismatic. Um, he's a Baptist. He's a good one. He's a very thoughtful man. He's one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our age. He says this, there's enough evidence that some form of charismatic gifts continued sporadically across the centuries of church history, so much so that it's futile to insist on doctrinaire grounds that every report is spurious or the fruit of demonic activity or psychological aberration. In other words, D.A. Carson says we actually know more about what was going on in the rest of the world throughout church history, and it seems like there's always been something like charismatic stuff going on. Or, I have a book written by a scholar, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our age, who is a charismatic, uh, Craig Keener. He wrote a commentary on John that had 50,000 footnotes. He's a nerd, all right? And I didn't read all the footnotes. But he... Uh, has wrote a two-volume work on miracles, at the end of which he, um, along with his brother, who's a doctor, lists pages of modern-day miracles that are more than just what we see happening in charismatic churches. You know, in Jesus' time, they raised the dead. Now people in charismatic churches claim that uh, they're still healing, and it's just from back pain. So I can understand why people be like, ah, but... In many parts of the world, there are people being raised from the dead. Validated cases by people who know about good criteria of evidence. There are blind people being healed. And these are not believe it at any cost sort of people. These are good scholars who know lines of evidence. And so all of that to say... Not only is it not true that miracles and the sign gifts were subsiding by the time we get to the end of the New Testament, it seems like they've, in some form or another, been going on throughout the age of the church. And then finally, the sufficiency argument. And here's basically how this argument goes. And it kind of follows from all of these. The sufficiency argument is, if signs are just given around times of new revelation, and if signs are just given to validate um, argument, and if historically they've gone off the scene, then there's an argument that that must be God's way of telling us that the scripture is sufficient for us. That's all we need. Here's how the argument normally goes. Now that we have the scripture... There's no need for miracles, tongues, and prophecy. Again, here's the way one scholar put it. When scripture is completed, then the church will have revelation thoroughly suited to her condition on earth. Our completed Bible is perfect in the sense that it is utterly sufficient revelation for all our needs. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, when the sufficient comes, the inadequate and partial will be done away. Tongues will vanish. Knowledge and prophecies will cease because at that time the New Testament is finished. And so the argument here is now that we've got the Bible, we don't need all of that stuff. A couple responses. Number one, let me, let's do a timeout. Does anybody question that I basically agree with this? I mean, I'm, I don't get up here every Sunday and Wednesday night and preach from the poems of so-and-so. We don't vamp on an inspirational quote by... Some, we, no, we, what do we do? 
Bible, all right? We went through, we survived Leviticus, all right? And when I'm counseling people, I go to the scripture. When we're trying to reason through things and argue together about where we need to go next as a church, we go to the scripture. When we think about how it is we should frame our mission, how we should frame our everything, where do we go? Scripture. So there's no part of me that in any way has a beef with this argument so far as it goes. It's just it doesn't go too far. If we say that the Bible is enough for people to believe and that the Holy Spirit uses the Bible so we don't do other things, I just have a couple of questions to ask. Wasn't Jesus enough? Right? Weren't the apostles enough? And yet the Lord decided with both Jesus and the apostles to do what? Attend what they said with the miraculous, with sign gifts. Paul, when he did miraculous things, wasn't in any way saying the Old Testament is insufficient, was he? He preaches the sufficiency of the Old Testament all the time. Jesus himself could look at the Pharisees and say, if you knew Moses, you'd believe in what? You'd believe in me. So Jesus believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's not what this does, going back to the way we argue, is this sets up a false contrast. You either believe in the sufficiency of Scripture or you believe that it's insufficient and therefore it needs miracles. That's not the right choice. The right choice is the Scripture is sufficient and sometimes God in His grace gives attesting signs. God does it. Well, He gives gifts to do it as well. And so what this does is this assumes something that the Bible never says. The Bible never ever says anywhere, once the canon is complete, all of this stuff is going to stop. It doesn't even logically follow from anything that the Bible says anywhere. The Bible does have a text, though, that talks about when miracles uh, and these sorts of things will cease. And that's 1 Corinthians 13. Paul has been talking in chapter 12 about tongue speaking and about signs. In chapter 13, he talks about love related to that. And we'll apply things that way at the end. And then in chapter 14, Paul talks about the way you do uh, spiritual gifts in church. And here's what I want you to see about the, the timing that Paul gives us here. There's only one thing that never ends. What is it? Love. Which is why Paul says, no matter what you think about the gifts, no matter what it comes to exercising them, the number one thing we need as believers is love, because it's the thing that never ends. He says, as for prophecies, in, in the next couple of weeks we're going to define what that is, they will what? And it's a, it's a, in the Greek, it's a middle passive. That means they'll pass away on their own. They'll pass away of themselves. As for tongues, they will what? See, as for knowledge, and I think here it's, not, it's talking about prophetic, specific instances of knowledge, it will what? And so the question is, when? And there's nowhere in this text or any text that says when the New Testament is complete. But it does give us a time here. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So these things are going to pass away when the perfect comes. And then in verse 11, Paul begins to give us clues as to when that is. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. 
When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so he, he's talking about knowing here and passing away, and he says there's coming a time when all these things will pass away when we know fully, even as we have been fully known. And the question is, when is that? Based on everything I can see, it's the second coming of Jesus. I don't think you can argue from this text that in having the scripture, we see the Lord face to face. I don't think in having the completed canon, you can say we know fully, even as I have been fully known. The only way I know to make sense of this text, and it isn't absolutely clear, I'll grant you that. The best way I know to make sense of this uh, is he's talking about the fact when we no longer see in a mirror dimly. That, that's when Jesus returns. And so, yes, love is the thing that will never end. But prophecies, yes, they'll pass away. Tongues will cease. This will pass away when? When we see Jesus face to face and we know fully, even as we have been fully known. So, I don't think that the sign gifts are gone. Let's say some final words before we're done. Number one, don't freak out. Don't freak out. You've been, most, some of you, not all of you, but many of you have been here five to ten years under my leadership. Surely that will help you see we're not going anywhere weird or that just because I believe that these things are still in operation that somehow that means the Bible is not completely sufficient. What I'm actually arguing for in all this is not, man, I hope you guys start speaking in tongues soon and prophesying soon and doing miracles soon. That'd be awesome. Actually, what I want to do in arguing for all of this is to help us see that we really need to read our Bibles. That's my ultimate push because the way the human brain is structured and the way we just kind of tend to work is this. There's so much to think about that anywhere that a thumbnail sketch will do, we just trust the thumbnail sketch. Does that make sense? And so our thumbnail sketch is some really smart and godly people have said those things have passed away and charismatics are weird. Thumbnail sketch, I don't believe it. Let me go on and think about other things. And we do that with about 15 things in the Bible. Somebody smart said this, the people who think otherwise are weird. Thumbnail sketch, thumbnail sketch, thumbnail sketch, thumbnail sketch. And what I'm saying is, the reason we do that is because we want to concentrate on other things, you know, that are more important, like season eight of Game of Thrones, or the Redskins score, or so-and-so's relationship with this, or the really important things that we don't want to have a hazy understanding of, those are the things that we really dig into. Do you see my point? We need to take the Bible and realize that even though you believe it from the table of contents to the maps, that is about a million miles away from a guarantee that you understand it. Right? And we need to have more than thumbnail sketches of what the scripture says. So my whole point in doing this is not because uh, I want you to speak in tongues. 
Because our charismatic friends need to know that every time tongues is listed as one of the spiritual gifts, it's always listed last. I've not experienced tongues. I have experienced this two or three times in my ministry. Somebody is talking to me, and I know what their problem is before they say it. Someone was getting ready to tell me one time that they had um, something terrible go on in their past, and I knew what it was before they said it. And that things like that have happened. So that's my way of telling you, you've got no secrets from me. No, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> on a couple of times, it, and, and it wasn't like they were unwilling to tell me. They were just embarrassed. And so finally, it's like, come on. Come, you know, it wasn't so I could condemn. It was just to say, you can tell me, and then I get to tell them the gospel, and that Jesus' blood covers every mistake, and, and these sorts of things. Um, I, I think there have been times where I've experienced knowledge. Now, at the time, did I think it was a spiritual gift that was a sign? No, I just thought maybe things came together in my head a certain way. Would I like to speak in tongues? I, I think I would. I'm not opposed to it. I've prayed for it. It hasn't happened. I don't think I'm a failure because of it. Um, do I want us to start doing it in our services? No. <laughs> Not, not really. Um, but what I want us to do, the whole point of this is not to say, yay, I've got one of these. It's, it's to say, we need to, this is what we're doing on Revelation on Sunday mornings. We just have a thumbnail sketch that's been given to us. And we assume because these people said it, it must be right. And I just want to go, maybe it is right, but let's dig in and see because the Lord tells us we need to dig in and see. So my main point in, in teaching this tonight is not to do anything other than to say, you really should look into this. You should really look into it and read a lot of people that you trust and read a few that you're skeptical of and hold it up to the Bible and, and see, see what you come up with. And I think, too, 1 Corinthians 8 is a good point for us to uh, meditate on, and we'll do this a little bit more next week. Um that the main gift that we need to be exercising in the church is love for one another. And there, there's, there's no doubt that in Paul's day, the reason he sticks the love chapter in, in the stuff on all these gifts is because you have people who have these gifts who are braggadocious and talking about their how gifted they are. And then you have other people who because their whole experience of people has been fake and unloving, that they just discount everything. And I think what Paul would want us to say is, let's deal with one another in a loving way. So look at 1 Corinthians 13, and let's, let's read it as if Paul is talking about sign gifts. Because, guess what Paul is talking about? Sign gifts. And so what does he say? Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Do you think those words could speak into a church that was basically split over the sign gifts? It's like Paul goes back from one to the other. That's the main thing we need to know. And then finally, let me say this. Go to 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Paul does something interesting. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the Greek words that are used for spiritual gifts. Natumakoi, pneumatikoi, excuse me. Pneumatikoi is one, and charisma is the other. Uh, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, uh, in the Greek it literally says, now concerning the spirituals. Concerning the spirituals, that is, all these gifts. And, and this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering a bunch of questions. So in chapter 7, he's answering a question about uh, marriage and celibacy. Uh, he asks a question. He's answering some questions in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 about the Lord's Supper because they were having some trouble about that. And some were getting drunk and some weren't having any food at all. And it was all a terrible situation. The Corinthians were really, really messed up. Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians 12, it seems like Paul speaks about spiritual gifts because the church was split about it. And it seems like um, they, they asked them a question. And so Paul says, now concerning the spirituals, brother, I do not want you to be uninformed. You, kn you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts. And the word gifts there is charisma. So what does Paul do? They want to talk about spiritual gifts as the spirituals. And Paul wants to talk about them as charisma, that is, gifts of grace. See what he's doing there? Uh, we'll talk about spiritual gifts. The first things you need to know is they're gifts of grace. These are the things we tend to get haughty about. These are the things that we tend to think ourselves better than others about. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, what do you have that was not given to you? What do you have that was not given to you? And then the second thing that Paul says, and this is what he's getting at in verse 2 and in verse 3, he basically says this. If you can say from the heart, Jesus is Lord, then you've got enough of the Holy Spirit to be okay. You see that? That's his point there. Before he even gets into spiritual gifts, he's like, listen, nobody can say Jesus is accursed if they're speaking to the Holy Spirit. And nobody can say Jesus is Lord except for the Holy Spirit. So if that person besides you, that you don't like what they do in church because it's off-putting and it speaks over the pastor and it kind of annoys you, uh, you need to know you can't just go there unspiritual and fleshly. If they can say Jesus is Lord, they've got the Holy Spirit. And hey, you over here with all these sign gifts, you may think that this person is less spiritual than you because they haven't spoken in tongues. If they can say Jesus is Lord by the Spirit, they're okay. Suck it up. Y'all get along. Love one another. Paul expected the New Testament church to stay together over stuff that we would feel completely justified the split over. There's no two ways around that. So the number one thing we need to do in all of these things is realize is that we should celebrate that anybody can say Jesus is Lord. That means the Spirit is at work at them and we should celebrate that. The other thing we should do is realize that whatever gift we have, it's a gift of grace. And third, we need to realize that the thing that will hold us together is not be, me being able to exercise my gifts, but all of us being loving towards one another. 
Nobody can disagree with that, but you can disagree with all the tongue-speaking stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, I am a continuationist, although a very cautious one. Um, And next week, we'll look at another couple of arguments and define these things a little bit better. And then maybe next week and the week after that, talk about some ways we can move forward. Capiche? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Uh, Help us, uh, above all things, to be loving people uh, who are grateful that we can say Jesus is Lord. Father, help us to live in love towards one another and towards you. That's very difficult because we are often impatient and rude. We are often cynical and judged too early, irritable and resentful. We often rejoice at wrongdoing and not at the truth. We don't bear all things. We don't often believe all things. We certainly don't hope or endure all things. And so, God, by your Spirit, give us grace so that we can love one another. Lord, also give us wisdom. I certainly haven't said the last word on anything, and I could very well be wrong. So just help us to humbly to continue to look at your word. And then, Lord, we pray, since gifts are given to make us better, then, Lord, be pleased to... Give us strength to exercise our gifts uh, for the building up of other people, all to the glory of your name. We pray this through Christ. Amen. I've cut it short, so you just got two minutes to go get your kids. Um, Maybe I did that on purpose, so you can't ask me questions. Good night.